Good morning. Everybody doing all right? Turn to Luke chapter 2, if you would, as we're going to be in the uh, second part of our series to, today, our Christmas series, Luke chapter 2. And as you're turning there, uh, I, want to, uh, I want to tell you about really a, a fantastic story, as a matter of fact. Um, Casey, uh, <clears throat> off and on, my wife has worked for the city of San Clemente. Uh, she's done some, uh, some drama teaching down there. And she's, uh, she helps kids uh, learn how to act and put on performances for after-school programs. And uh, one of her co-workers that uh, she uh, was working with for uh, a couple years, uh, they, uh, he and his wife had been trying to have kids. And um, they had been uh, married for about uh, eight, nine years or so and uh, had been trying year after year, uh, to have a child. It was the one thing that they were waiting for. The one thing that, that in their lives, for the two of them, like that was the most important thing for them as a couple, that they could have a child. And they had problems getting pregnant. And they had gone to the doctor and they had uh, tried a number of, of measures to resolve the problem, none of which worked. And so finally, about eight years, nine years into their marriage, they decided to adopt and uh, they, 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 they said, if the Lord's not going to give us a, a, a physical child from our own lineage, then, then we'd like to adopt. And so they did. They went out and they, they adopted uh, a little boy. And at the time that they adopted him, just slightly after the fact, having given up all hope of a, of a personal child, having given up all hope of having a child from their own lineage come forth, when they weren't trying, when they weren't looking for it, they got pregnant. In their tenth year of marriage, uh, they are now pregnant today. The, the doctor confirmed it a few months ago. She's having a very successful pregnancy. It looks like uh, it is smooth sailing from here on out. And ten years of waiting for one thing. And right when they had gotten to the point where they pretty much just gave it up and gave it over to the Lord, that was when the Lord brought forth this child in her womb. And today she is about uh, six months pregnant, I think it is. Isn't that an amazing story? How many of you have heard a story like that? Or maybe some of you, uh, uh, that's happened to you perhaps. You know, when we hear stories like that, when we hear stories of people waiting and waiting and waiting for something that is so precious and so valuable to them, and finally it happens, that is a truly, truly heartwarming story. And one that reminds us that, that our God is a good God. He is gracious and blesses those who wait upon Him. And our story today in Luke, our story today in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, is about two people who were waiting for the Lord's Christ to be born. They were waiting for the Messiah, the Savior of the world to be born, and for Simeon and Anna, the two people who are going to be our focus points today. For these two people, most likely uh, both of them prophets of God, a prophet and a prophetess, for these two people, the, the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah was the one thing that they were waiting for. It was the one hope that these two people had in their life. 
much like our, our, our friends at Casey's work, this was the one thing they wanted most. To have a child. To see this child, that is to say. The Christ child. To see the Savior of the world. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 25. The title of my message today is the second part in our series. The series entitled, We Saw the Lord's Christ. And that's taken from Luke 2.26 that we're going to see in just a moment. And, and we're looking at three different groups of people who were among the first to bear witness to the Messiah of God, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So today we're going to look at Simeon and Anna in our second part of this Christmas series. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. Take a look at what it says. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother uh, and Joseph and, and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, he said, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And now in a separate story, verse 36. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity or from her marriage, her marriage date. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord. And spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. We pray with me? Father God, bless this time as we read Your Word. Bless this time as we read a story many of us uh, are perhaps unfamiliar with from the infancy narratives of Your Son's birth. I pray that we would see this story afresh. That we would get a taste of what Simeon and Anna were waiting for. What they were looking for. That we too would anticipate with them. Your Son, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray these things. Amen. I'd like to go out of order uh, today. A little bit more for uh, not so much... Uh, uh, a little bit to, to, to help our sermon along 
help the flow of the message along, I'd like to start with Anne, actually, and then move to Simeon. And we're going to see toward the end of Simeon some of the climax, if you will, of this part of the infancy narrative of Christ. So start with me in verse 36, if you will. Let's begin with Anna's story and work back to Simeon's experience with Jesus. It says this in Luke 2.36, Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Now we don't know much of this woman, Anna. Uh, This is the only section of the Scriptures that she is listed in these three small verses. Uh, But Luke gives a few indications of who this woman is. First, he describes her as a prophetess. The Bible speaks of of a few women uh, who have been given this kind of title. Uh, You might know many of these. Miriam in Exodus. Deborah in Judges. Uh, We have Huldah in 2 Kings. Isaiah's wife was described as a prophetess in Isaiah chapter 8. And also, Philip's daughters in Acts 21 are described as, as having prophesied, if you will. Female prophets of God. And quite simply, that is what they are. This, uh, this woman, Anna, was simply a prophet of God who happened to be a female. She was a woman who received authoritative messages and words from God that she would declare to those who would listen to her. And in this case, we're going to see that Anna is, is within the temple in Jerusalem. And she most likely uh, worshipped and, and took place in prophecy in the women's quarters of the temple. There were different elements, uh, there were different quarters of the temple uh, grounds in Jerusalem. And she would have perhaps been in, in the place where, where the women would gather and she would be prophesying uh, to all who would listen, most prominently those women and children who were in that portion of the temple. A prophet of God, the Holy Spirit was upon this woman in a special manner, and she spoke authoritatively on behalf of the Lord God. Moving on to what it says uh, is her lineage. Notice this. It says, the daughter of uh, Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Now, Asher is one of the twelve tribes of Israel. It was located in the northwesternmost part of Israel. It was one of the ten tribes of Israel that were exiled, that were sent into slavery in about 8th century B.C., 722 B.C., to Assyria. And so, Anna, her lineage, by and large her ancestors, would have been exiled to Assyria in some way, shape, or form, or given a very, very meager uh, social standing in northwestern Israel. But she had returned over these many centuries, uh, finally to Jerusalem. Uh, Her family line continued, and she finds herself in the holy city at the time of the birth of the Messiah. Now, her father's name, Phanuel. This is a very interesting name. Uh, He was clearly a Jewish man tribe of Asher. It's safe to say that when Luke's writing this name, we've got to remember, he's writing a Greek name, Phanuel, with Greek letters, but it's a, it's a Jewish man, and the man's name was not a Greek name. 
And so what Luke's doing is he's transliterating this name. In other words, he's taking a Hebrew name, Fanuel, with the Hebrew characters, and he's writing it in Greek to make sure that the sounds all stay the same. Well, what's interesting about this name is that when you go back to the root of this name, when you go back to the Hebrew phrase, Fanuel, a very interesting fact arises that we cannot prove is related to this name, but very well could be. And it is this. If you look back in Genesis 32, Jacob, remember when Jacob wrestled with God? He wrestled with God, the angel of the Lord, and at at the end of which, at the end of that time in Genesis 32, at the end of that experience, he named the place where he wrestled with God Peniel, or Penuel, or Fanuel. A name that means, I have come face to face with God. I have come face to face with God. This name of a town, Peniel or Penuel in Greek, is the same spelling as Anna's father's name in Luke chapter 2, verse 35. Verse 36, excuse me. Is it conceivable that her father somehow had descended from this uh, historical town? It's conceivable. Is it conceivable that Luke is suggesting here that as Anna is picking up the Christ child, as she is seeing for the first time the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, that she's looking upon Him and she's remembering that her dad's name was face to face with God. And so she herself was looking face to face with God. Now again, it may be coincidence. Some would say it's most likely coincidence. But it is quite interesting that her father's name is the very name that describes Anna's experience with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let's move on to verse 36b. It says she was of a great age. Verse 36, second part. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. When it says that she lived with her husband seven years from her virginity, that is to say that she lived with him seven years in marriage. Apparently, her husband had died early in her life, and thus she was a widow of about 84 years. Safe to say this woman was at least... uh, a number of years, over a hundred years of age. And as a widow, she did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Now, at this point, um, I, I don't know about you, but I paused in this story and I said, why all the details? Why, why all these details? Look at all these details in verse 36, 37. Why would Luke bother to give all these details about a woman who only encompasses three verses in the New Testament and all of the Scriptures. Why all these details? You know, in, in truth, I, we don't know why all these details. Um, perhaps Luke's audience, in some way, shape, or form, knew of this woman in, in a manner of speaking. We don't know. Uh, that's probably not the case, though. To the scholarly eye, however, the tremendous amount of detail here, you know what it signals? You know what it tells us? 
it tells us that it is all the more proof that Luke, that what Luke was writing was in fact true and verifiable. To put it another way, people who write biographies or historians, and Luke himself was recounting a biography of the Lord Jesus Christ, people who do biographies and who are historians in a sense don't offer these kinds of superfluous details if in fact the story that they're recounting is not true. The details help prove that the account of Anna with Jesus isn't a fable, nor a legend, but it's a historical event. What biographer would bother talking about Anna having been widowed 84 years? What biographer would have been interested in speaking about her historical lineage or the fact that she had only been married seven years? These kinds of things, while somewhat important, are a little bit extra. But they go to show, they go to prove that this biographer, Luke, was doing a very careful, careful account of the person of Jesus Christ and of the experiences that he himself went through. Let's go to verse 38. Verse 38, it says this, And coming in that instant, this is Anna, she's coming in that instant, she gave gave thanks to the Lord upon seeing Jesus and spoke of Him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Luke says, coming in that instant, upon seeing the Christ child, upon seeing Joseph and Mary bringing in the child, and perhaps seeing Simeon himself just prior to Anna holding up the child in his arms, she gave thanks to the Lord. Much like seeing a a newborn baby for the first time. Those of you who have had a child, you look upon your newborn child and you, you you can't help but well up with joy. It is the most exhilarating experience. And for this couple, Casey's friend at at work, when they have this child in three months, I submit to you that it will be the greatest joy they've ever experienced. Why? Because they've been waiting for this. This is the child that they have been waiting for their whole lives. To have a child born from, from their own Lineage. And they're going to have that experience in three short months. Anna, in that instance, is looking upon the very child that she had desperately wanted to see her whole life. As a prophetess, she was no doubt speaking to the people within the temple gates about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Deliverer, the coming of the great Savior of the world and of Israel. As a prophetess, she was looking exclusively for the birth of this child. And it happened. And no doubt, she instantly gave thanks. And she spoke of Him, Luke says, to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Upon seeing Him, it gave Anna all the more inspiration to tell others about this wonderful, wonderful child. And so Anna continued her prophetic ministry, only this time she wasn't telling people to look onward. She wasn't telling people to look forward and await a coming Messiah. Instead, her ministry in the temple continued, and now she told the women and the children and all who would listen to her, He's here. He's here. I saw Him. 
the Messiah is here. Such a short story, isn't it? These three verses. Um, you know, you, I was telling my wife, I can, I can only pull so much out of these three verses. Um, there's, there's not a lot to, to grab hold of. Why does Luke put it in his Gospel? Why does Luke put this story in his Gospel? Looking at it through the eyes of a first century person, and that's how we need to look and approach the Scriptures, in particular the New Testament, of course. When we look at it through the eyes of a first century person, um, we are looking at it through a culture and through a lens, if you will, that is different than what you and I look through today. You see, we look at this story and we see a woman who happens to see the Christ child and we say, well, that's a great story. First century person reads a story of a female, a female Jew, who has the privilege of looking upon the Messiah, the long-awaited, anticipated Messiah, Savior of Israel. I submit to you that while we look at this story and think, what's the big deal, perhaps? They looked upon this story, and the readers of Luke looked upon this story, Theophilus, to whom Luke wrote this Gospel, and he went, a woman? A woman saw the Christ child? A woman was given the privilege of looking upon this child? You see, friends... At this day and age, it was not common for a woman to be granted this privilege. It was not common for a woman, no less a Jewish woman, to be granted the privilege of being face-to-face, among the first to be face-to-face with the Messiah. It is as if It is as if Luke is saying the Savior of the world is not merely beneficial for men, you of the first century, you men of the first century who think think about the coming of the Messiah as such. You see, the men were looking for a great deliverer, a warrior, a political figure, one who would be a man's man, if you will. And it is as if Luke is saying, you know what, this Messiah is a little bit different than what your eyes thought Him to be. This Messiah is not just going to be beneficial for men, but for women. And there are many stories, as you well know, of Jesus and His social interaction with women in the Gospels, in particular the Gospel of Luke. Um, If you want to do a study of Jesus' interaction with women, Luke is the best Gospel to use. Because Luke is particularly interested in showcasing Jesus' attention toward women. Jesus loved women. Jesus defended the prostitute. Jesus healed the sick and afflicted women. Jesus offered living water to the woman at the well. Jesus was a Savior who was most interested in women. And it is as if Luke intends to say that this Christ is going to deliver women from unwarranted social and cultural oppression and ridicule. He is not just a man's Savior. 
He is a Savior for all peoples, both men and women. Now again, I can only speculate that that is why these three verses are included in Luke. But I think it's a good speculation. I think it's a good speculation, especially how Luke portrays women in the Gospel of Luke. Moving on. Now let's move back, if you will. We just saw a story that followed a story we're about to read. Move back, if you will. Turn back to Luke uh, Luke 2.25. And we're going to read a story that just preceded this one from Anna. It says this, in verse 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, who is Simeon? We actually know less of Simeon than we do Anna, based on what is said about Simeon's background. It could be that Simeon is from the tribe of Simeon, one of the twelve tribes, but his name does not require this. Uh, In Hebrew, his name means God has heard. God has heard. It says that Simeon was just in conduct and devout or religiously pious. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word waiting there means that he was eagerly looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the consolation or the comforter of Israel. And that word consolation or comforter is the same root word used later of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke. And so we we see some repeated themes here. Jesus was a consolation or a comfort, as also the Holy Spirit is a consolation or a comfort to us. And that phrase, the Holy Spirit was upon him, that phrase is the best indication, the best indication that Simeon is most likely some kind of prophet. This probable vocation for Simeon as a prophet of God would couple nicely with the story of Anna that follows this one. To say that the Holy Spirit was upon a person was to say that the Spirit was especially anointing him or her for a specific task. And keep in mind, up until this point, the Holy Spirit did not indwell those who had faith in God. The Holy Spirit did not indwell, permanently indwell those who had faith in God. That was something that happened after the time of Christ, at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit once and for all came upon those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. But up until this point, it is not theologically correct to suggest that all believers, in a sense, would have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And so to say that the Holy Spirit was upon him was to say that the Holy Spirit was especially upon him Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Hence the, the title of our, our, of our Christmas series. We saw the Lord's Christ. The Holy Spirit made a promise to Simeon. We don't know how, perhaps in a vision. Um, but the Holy Spirit made a promise to Simeon. And the Spirit told Simeon that he would not die physically until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Until he had seen the face of the Savior of the world. And Luke uses a little bit of a play on words here. He says he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 27, 
That there's that promise ringing in Simeon's ear and verse 27 comes along and says, So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God. Now Joseph and Mary were, were in the temple for a specific reason. They had had the child, the Christ child in Bethlehem, a week later, they had had him circumcised, presumably in Bethlehem. And approximately 40 days later, which would have been in the appropriate time for Mary's own purification, at an appropriate time, they would have left Bethlehem and gone on a five-mile journey, not a, not a long while, uh, a short walk, if you will, maybe a, a, a couple hours at most, a short walk into Jerusalem, to the temple usually about the time of 40 days after the birth of the child. So Jesus is now over a month old. And they're bringing him to the temple for a specific purpose. One, to dedicate their firstborn son per the Levitical law. The firstborn son was, was dedicated to the Lord. Those who were uh, especially pious Jews would dedicate their firstborn son to the Lord. He was to be a special child before the Lord, as all firstborn sons were in that, uh, in that culture. And secondly, it was to offer an appropriate sacrifice for the birth of their son in verse 24 of Luke chapter 2. And that sacrifice indicates that they came with a, with a meager sacrifice, uh, two turtle doves or two pigeons, um, which would have been a, a sacrifice for a, a more lower economically stable family. Uh, Jesus was not well off. His family was not well off. The sacrifice that they gave to the temple in Luke chapter 2, verse 24, indicates that he was not born into an affluent home or family, but rather born into a very meager setting. So, Simeon is in the temple, presumably as a prophet prophesying, and the parents bring in the child Jesus to do for Christ according to the custom of the law. And Simeon sees Jesus. And he took him up in his arms. And he blessed God. Now we're not told, are we, how Simeon knew that this was the Lord's Christ. Um, perhaps some from Bethlehem had accompanied Joseph and Mary to Jerusalem. And they were declaring to all who had listened the angelic visions that Mary and Elizabeth and the shepherds had seen in and around the time of the birth of the child. We don't know how Simeon knew that this was the Christ child, but in some way, shape, or form, he gathered that information, whether it was divine revelation or just the, the ruckus of the crowd who had entered the temple. And he takes up this child in his arms and he blesses God. We're going to get to the blessing in just a moment, but I, I imagine as he took up the child in his arms, he asked the parents, what is his name? What is the Messiah's name? And when they said, Jesus, or Yeshua, which would have been his legitimate, original, Aramaic name. When they said, Yeshua, Undoubtedly, Simeon would have smiled as a prophet of God and saying, Ah, oh, yes, how appropriate. Yeshua, God saves. God saves. 
What an appropriate name to give to the Messiah of Israel. And Simeon blesses God, it says. He blesses God. Verse 29. He says, Lord, now You are letting Your servant depart in peace according to Your Word. For my eyes have seen Your salvation. Verse 31. Which You have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Your people, Israel. In verse 29, he says, Lord, now You are letting Your servant depart in peace according to Your Word. That is to say, the promise that Your Spirit gave to me has now been fulfilled. I'm at peace. The one thing I was looking for has happened. The one thing that I've been striving for for these many years as a prophet has occurred. And the one promise that You gave me has come to pass. And I leave now in a state of peace. I can pass now from this earth with peace. Verse 30, For my eyes have seen Your salvation, God, which You have prepared before the face of all peoples. I'm looking upon the Messiah, the Almighty Deliverer, whom You have given as a gift to the world, whom You have prepared before the face of all peoples. My eyes are looking at the child that's going to bring about this salvation. Verse 32, he says, A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles in the glory of your people Israel. That is to say, the, the, the Christ, this child will open up the eyes of the Gentile people and will restore to Israel, God's people, the glory that they once held. The reference to Jesus being a light to Gentiles is also found many, many times in the Old Testament. And Simeon, being a prophet, would have known this. In particular, Isaiah 42.6, for those of you who would like to look that up, says that, that He is a light to the Gentiles. Read the latter part of Ephesians 2 and the early part of Ephesians 3, and Paul will confirm what Simeon's saying. He's saying, namely, that in the person of Jesus Christ, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the formerly pagan nations, you and me, Gentiles, have received the greatest blessing of all in the person of this child. We have been brought near by Jesus Christ to God's salvation. And we now can receive entrance into God's kingdom by faith in Christ. Simeon could depart in peace. And now we come to the very end of our text today. And for me, this is, this is the, the climax. This is the, the highlight of, of, of the story. Uh, for, for, for me, as I was reading through this, I was, I was, really, I was really blessed by these last three verses and, and I found them very interesting and insightful. He, he turns his attention away from God for a moment. He, he's blessed God as, as Mary had blessed God in, in Luke 1 and as, as Elizabeth had blessed God in Luke 1. And now Simeon blesses God in Luke 2. You're seeing a pattern here. Luke is weaving a, a precious story. 
And now verse 36, excuse me, verse 33. And Joseph and his mother Mary, they marveled at those things which were spoken of Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Joseph and Mary, they stood in amazement while Simeon blessed God and and did what he did with their child. They, They were just in awe of all the attention that their child had been receiving. And then, of all things, Simeon turns to them and he blesses them. He blesses their family. And in particular, he turns to Mary. And he says this to Mary. He says, Behold, your child, this child, is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. That is to say, Jesus' birth, His incarnation, and His coming ministry on earth will result in the fall or the downfall of many in Israel and the rising of many in Israel. That word rising is the Greek word anastasis. And it, anastasis, and it means uh, literally, physically, it means resurrection. Um, in fact, Luke uses this verb 16 other times in his Gospel and in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, which he also wrote. 16 other times, so 17 in total. And of the 16 times that this verb is used, every single time it refers to uh, literal, physical resurrection. Now, at at face glance, at first glance, it doesn't appear to be the fact that that Simeon is speaking about physical resurrection here. I'm not entirely convinced that Simeon meant to say that the Jews, many Jews would rise victoriously from the dead because of their acceptance of the Christ. However, uh, we can't rule that out either. It could be that he's saying that very thing. And obviously Luke's use of the word attests to that. But literal physical resurrection does not appear to be the theme of Simeon's statement. His words are of a more general tone, emphasizing that those who accept this child will rise up. They will be the ones who overcome. And those who reject this child will fall. It will be to their downfall or their doom, if you will. Naturally, we certainly know elsewhere in the Scriptures that those who accept Jesus will rise physically from the dead unto eternal life. That is a fact of Scripture. And that those people will not be among those who rise from the dead unto condemnation. But Simeon here is probably speaking on a more general level. Some who accept, those who accept Him will rise up. They will be the ones who overcome. Those who reject Him will fall down. Jesus will be to them a downfall. And he says, And the child is also destined for a sign which will be spoken against. Jesus' coming will not be uniformly embraced by the people of Israel. Something that no first century Jew would have thought about the Messiah. I'll say that again. Jesus' coming would not be uniformly embraced by the people of Israel. He would be spoken against. Though His coming was clearly a miraculous sign of God, it would not be universally recognized as such. Instead, some will speak against Jesus. As we've studied in the Gospel of Mark, in our sermon series from this last fall, we're going to continue it next year, some even attributed Jesus' 
very power to Satan himself in Mark 3. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Some will rise up in acceptance of the Messiah. Others will fall and reject the Messiah. And then let's focus on the part about the sword here. Zero in on this section. It says, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now to Mary, Simeon says these words. He says, a sword will pierce through your soul, Mary. What does that mean? Uh, what, are, what, are the significance, what is the significance of that phrase? Uh, are we to take it literally or metaphorically? Um, well, clearly, there's no uh, historical evidence to suggest that Mary was ever pierced physically with a sword. Uh, we don't know the manner in which Mary died, um, but we have no reason to believe that physically Mary was pierced with a sword in her earthly life. And so this is clearly a metaphorical statement, a statement made about the pain that Mary would undergo as she watched her child grow, as she watched her child experience pain, and as she watched her child die. Now, I don't know about you, I've, uh, we, my wife and I have been fortunate not to have our son be in tremendous pain yet. I know that day is coming where he does something terribly dramatic and it, it scares us to death. Um, but, but we do recall uh, early on, as he was a little boy, uh, our son Bennett, when he was about uh, two months old, he started, getting, uh, he started not sleeping through the night. And uh, for about two straight months, he was not sleeping through the night. And we would go into his crib, and I would look upon my son, and he would just be wreathing in pain. Um, he would be arching his back, and you could tell that he was kind of gritting his, his gums, not his teeth. And he was just in pain. And it, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't dramatic. It, wasn't, it was, wasn't terribly significant. But we knew he was in pain. And I'll tell you, the hopelessness that a parent feels when their child is in pain. I know you can resonate with that. So many of you who have children have seen your child in pain and you just you don't know what to do about it sometimes. Fortunately for us, we were able to diagnose the problem. He had what was called acid reflux. We got the right medication and instantly the pain was gone. And we were able to find that relief. But during those two months that we did not know what the problem was, it was awful for us to look upon our baby and see him in pain. And so also uh, magnify that tremendously here with what we're looking at. Because here we have a mother whose son is not only going to experience pain, but she's going to watch him die. She's going to watch him be crucified one day. And Simeon says, a sword's going to pierce your soul. You're going to be in a tremendous amount of pain in the future. Pain that, that you, uh, you can't even fathom right now. And so it, it serves as, as, a, as a prophetic uh, word of, of of warning to Mary that she needs to prepare herself for a coming day of pain in which she's going to watch her son bear upon his shoulders the sin of all the world. Watch her son die. Turn now to the, the very end of the verse. We're concluding with this and this is, this is a very significant statement. Simeon says this at the end of verse 35. 
He says, he concludes his words to Mary saying that her son's very existence in this world would reveal the content of men's hearts. He says that the, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The study Bible that many of you have, the Nelson Study Bible, really says it best here. It says that Jesus is the litmus test. The buck stops with the person of Jesus Christ. What people say about Him will reveal the nature of their heart, whether it is one that is destined for condemnation or one that is destined for eternal life. And Simeon ends his words to Mary with this phrase, that the thoughts, many hearts, may be revealed. It is as if if to say to Mary and to Joseph, your son is going to be the litmus test. He is going to be where the buck stops for all the peoples of the world. What people think of your son will determine their eternity. Simeon's words are, are, are gravely significant. Spoken 2,000 years ago and they ring true today, friends. Jesus said this in John 14:6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Uh, so often, um, so often in this world today, we, we find our culture esteeming the ideology, esteeming the viewpoint that one's religion or one's worldview is a subjective matter. One that cannot possibly be judged to be true or false. Some in our culture today, I know many of you have friends who, who do this. And many of you who see this on television. Many of you who watch politicians do it. Who watch those on the news do it. Who watch those in Hollywood do it. Who hear those in the university do it. They say things like, well, religion is simply a matter of personal preference or taste. Much like you can't determine whether chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla, they say, it's, it's a matter of personal preference. And so also, they say, you can't prove that Christianity is superior to Islam or, or Buddhism or, or Mormonism or, or atheism. Religion is only a matter of personal preference, personal taste, nothing more than a hobby. Nothing more than a private, subjective matter, right? I've had professors tell me that. I attended, uh, I attended a Christian university, but I took some classes on the side at a community college in Fullerton. Well, there you go, I just gave it away. Fullerton College. And my philosophy professor, every day, every day in class was talking like this. Religion is nothing more than choosing between chocolate and vanilla ice cream, he would say. I'm here to say otherwise. I'm here to remind each of you that the claims made by Jesus Christ are not relegated to the subjective. The statement behind me is not a subjective statement. It is an objective statement. It is an exclusive 
statement. It is a statement that people of sound mind must read for themselves and decide for themselves whether they believe that statement to be true or false. Uh, People who read this plainly, and I say plainly, when you read the teaching of Jesus Christ plainly and the teaching of the Bible plainly, those people know full well that they don't have the luxury of being indifferent toward what Jesus says. C.S. Lewis put it very aptly. He says, you don't have the luxury of being indifferent toward Jesus. You only have three options in reacting to Jesus. You can call Him a liar. You can say that everything that Jesus taught in the Bible is is a lie, that that statement is a lie. You can say that, C.S. Lewis said. Two, you you can call Him a lunatic. You can say, well, He was just a crazy man. And you can point to that statement behind me and say, well, that... He was just, you know, he was off his rocker. He should have been institutionalized. So you can call him crazy. Or three, you can call him Lord. And you can say what he said was true. And that statement is true. And I believe it to be true. And that changes things. That changes my reaction to Jesus. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. I urge you, friends, uh, those of you in this room who think you can be indifferent to the person of Jesus Christ, I, I urge you in the, with the deepest part of my soul to know, to, to know today that you can't be indifferent toward Jesus Christ. You can't. You don't have that luxury. You don't have that convenience. You must decide, is he a liar, is he a lunatic, or is he a Lord? Because that statement behind me is a very exclusive statement. And I also urge those of you who, who do call upon Jesus Christ as Lord, uh, I urge you to not permit, to, not, to graciously not permit your family and your friends and your neighbors from being indifferent to the person of Jesus Christ. Based on the claims Jesus made, they don't have that luxury. You know, I think often, uh, as, I try to, as I try to explain this to people who think they can be kind of like, laissez-faire toward Christ, I say, how about, uh, how about the person of Hitler? Um, Hitler, when I even uh, bring up that name, it, uh, it sparks a reaction, doesn't it? Do you know of anyone, raise your hand if you know of anyone who is indifferent to the person of Hitler. Okay, none of you. Of course not, right? Of course not. Of course none of you are indifferent to the person of Hitler. Why? Why are you not indifferent to him? Because he was a terribly polarizing figure. He advocated the genocide of the Jewish race. He instigated the largest war in the history of all the world. No one is indifferent toward Hitler because they can't be. We either look upon Hitler... And we reject what he stood for, and we reject his claims, and we reject his ideology, and find it repulsive. Or, oddly enough, some look upon Hitler with admiration, like the president of of one certain country in the Middle East. They look upon him and say, yes, what a great man. And they applaud his efforts to get get rid of the world of the Jewish race. Now, you say, well, 
Neil, the example of Hitler, how does that ring true here? Hitler was an evil man who polarized the world, no doubt. On the other hand, Jesus is widely recognized, widely recognized as a good man and a moral man. I say make no mistake, folks. Make no mistake. Jesus' teaching as recorded in the Scripture is no less polarizing. It's no less polarizing. Jesus did not advocate any kind of genocide like the evil man of Hitler. But he certainly did not shy away from saying that eternal life is only found, exclusively found, by faith in him. And that is a terribly, terribly polarizing statement. I would need someone else to enlighten me as to how Jesus' teaching about eternal condemnation are somehow not polarizing conversations. Simeon says, Jesus is the litmus test. Verse 35. He is where the buck stops. What we believe about Jesus will determine our eternal destiny. I want to close with a few thoughts here. A few thoughts that we can walk away with here uh, this morning. The first is this. Jesus' birth was and is good news. By it, God signaled that He was bringing salvation to all people, men and women, Jew and Gentile. Don't lose that from the story of Anna. I don't want us to miss that. This is good news for everyone. And secondly, as we concluded our, our time today, God has appointed His Son to be the revealer of the hearts of mankind. Jesus is the litmus test. His earthly teaching and actions do not give people the luxury of being indifferent toward Him or simply thinking Him to be a good man. Jesus' claims are too polarizing for either of these responses to be acceptable. What you believe about Jesus will affect your eternal livelihood, your eternal destiny. Folks, this Christmas season, I urge those of you who do not know of Jesus Christ to look upon Him in the Scriptures, to recognize the simple teaching that by faith in Christ, you can have the merriest Christmas of all. You can become a child of God and enter the kingdom of God forever. I pray that you would do that. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this time in Your Word. Thank You for this story of Simeon and Anna. Two people we uh, often don't uh, read about or remember in your, in your Gospel. Yet these two prophets, they were waiting for Your Son. And they saw Him. They saw the Lord's Christ. You gave them, Father, the great and earnest desire of their hearts. Father, I pray that Your Son would be the great and earnest desire of our hearts today. I pray that those of us who know Him would grow to love Him with a greater love. That those who don't know Him would come to faith in Christ today and receive everlasting life. Father, we declare that Your Son is the revealer of men's hearts. He is the litmus test. And Father, what we think and what we believe about Him is of eternal significance. I pray that no one in this room would walk away not having understood this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.